Well, as uh, we just talked about a few seconds ago, a few minutes ago actually, um, this is not the last Sunday before Advent starts. This is the next to the last Sunday before Advent starts. And my plan had been to continue the What Is series right up through Advent. And I thought this was our last Sunday, too. Honestly, I did, until I looked at the calendar and went, oh, uh, now I've got to come up with something else. <laughs> um, but the, 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 uh, the sermon topic that I wanted to come up, that I came up with weeks ago for this one, is called What Is a Christian? Now, sounds like a really simple, easy, just one, two, three thing. We could be done over within two or three minutes. But as I started talking about this with people that I'm in class with, reading things, blogs that other Christians have written, studying the scriptures for myself, meditating, chewing on this for the last couple, three weeks, it's like, hmm, 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 what is a Christian? Um, so I wanted to start this morning by simply doing this. I want everyone in the room who considers themselves a Christian to raise their hand. Keep your hand up. I want everyone in the room who's got their hand up to now look around to see who else has their hand up. Keep your hand up. If I were to ask each one of you who have your hand raised to stand, and I'm not going to do this, but if I were to have you stand and tell the rest of us how you know that you're a Christian, there would be just as many answers. You can put your hands down now. There would be just as many answers as there are people with their hands raised. If I were to ask each of you who raised your hand, how do you know that you're a Christian? There would be a different answer. Now, if I were to say to you, how do you know that you're an American citizen? Every single one of you would be able to say either, I was born here, or I'm a naturalized citizen because I moved here and chose this country. One of two answers, and every single one of you would be able to answer within one of those two ways. How do you know that you're an Alaskan citizen? Well, it's real easy. Pull out your driver's license. Pull out your mill rate receipt if, you are, if you're a homeowner. Pull out whatever official document. Pull out your PFD application. Okay, but there's some definitive ways to identify who you are as an Alaskan. There's very definitive ways to identify who you are as an American. But it's nebulous when we try to identify what makes us Christian. Because some of us will say one thing, and others will say another thing, and others will say another And in most cases, you're all right. But you're not fully right. You're not completely right in your answer. And so that's what I wanted to look at this morning. We're going to examine the question, what is a Christian? And I want you to notice the, the emblems that I have on the screen those are all various types of crosses because every single one of you perceive the cross differently as well. Every single one of you have different icons in your world that represent to you who God is. Things that you gather around you to remind you of God. Every one of you practice your faith 
differently. Some of you gather together regularly and share a commonality in some of your practice. But reality, if every single one of you were to tell me what God looks like, we would hear different stories. I don't know, I, I, I would imagine most of you have seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz. The one that was done back in the 30s. Dor in the movie, Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodman, and the Lion all present themselves before the great Oz at one time. And how does the Oz present himself back to them? Like a big, huge green head with flames coming up, right? Well, if you read the book, that's not how it happened. He appeared to one of them as a great big head. He appeared to another one as a flaming torch. He appeared to another one as a beautiful young woman. He appeared to another... I mean, different personifications because they didn't all come at the same time. They all came individually to present their request. But for the movie, they had to compress it all down because they didn't have enough time for everyone to make their own individual thing. But literally... When the, when the Oz was found out as a fraud, they saw behind the, the, the palace where he had all of these props set up that he would have to set up and arrange before the person came in so that he could present himself in an appropriate way. But see, God doesn't mess himself up like that. God doesn't play like that. God is who God is and he never changes, but we perceive him differently. And see, that's, that's the difference. It's not that God pre presents himself differently, it's we perceive him differently. So, this morning, what is a Christian? In other words, what, is it, what does it mean when someone calls themselves a Christian? Well, first of all, Christians didn't call themselves Christian at first. Did you know that? When the church first started after the resurrection of Jesus, the church was not known as the church. And the church was not known as a group of Christians. The church was known as the way. If you were to um, look it up, it's mentioned a couple times in the Bible, but specifically Acts chapter. And we, you don't have to turn there because you know we could, you could be turning forever. But just take your notes down. Acts chapter nine verses one and two says. Meanwhile, Saul was was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, the Lord's followers. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for a letter to the synagogues in Damascus, authorizing him to arrest any people he might find, whether it was a man or a woman, who belonged to the way, and to bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial. And then if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, well, let me be, before I go there, let me tell you also, there was another group of people that were, that were at the same, going on at the same time frame as Jesus and his disciples, and we now know them as the Essenes, and we believe that one of the disciples of Jesus was actually an Essene because the Essenes were zealous for the, the, uh, the purity of the faith of Israel. And there was a, a disciple who was known as the Zealot. But the Essenes, we now today know them as the community at Qumran, the ones who kept their Bibles in scroll form in clay jars in the caves of Qumran. And we now know of them because they were discovered back in the 40s as the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
So this Essene sect at Qumran, they also are recorded as describing themselves as the way. You see, this was a natural designation for any group that believed that it alone followed the way of righteousness. The way to have right relationship with God. So the followers of Jesus following his resurrection and as they were beginning to assimilate together in a group of people that that worshipped together and taught together and ate together and basically lived together, they became known among themselves as the way. Where do you think that might have come from? Think of John chapter 14, verse 6. Huh? Exactly. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the way. We are followers of Jesus. We are followers of the way. So there's this cultural thing going on that they become known as the way amongst themselves. So how do we get this word Christian tagged onto who we are? How many of you people say in your daily life, yeah, I'm a member of the way. I'm part of the way. Jesus is the way. Did you know that? Nobody says that. We dropped that almost 2,000 years ago. We started taking on the word Christian. I'm a Christian. Well, what does Christian mean? Well, let's look at it. Christian means little Christ. You see, in Acts chapter 1, excuse me, 11, verse 26, it says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So there's a church in Antioch. This is the church that Paul went to, where Barnabas and Paul were when Paul was... Uh, was starting off his ministry. And this is the church that Paul attended. And they were known in the Antioch community as little Christs. Look at all those little Christs walking down the road. Hey, look at little Christs over there. Y'all think you're so holy and righteous. Little Christs. That's literally what was happening. Christianos. Christianos. <laughs> Christianos, look at you. And it stuck. I guess it's easier than saying, yeah, I'm a member of the way. I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. But see, we took it, at least they took it, that it was actually something to be proud of. Why? I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. That's what he told me to be. So if people are seeing Jesus in me and calling me a little Christ, (laughs) yeah, cool. Look at uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Thinking about this idea that Christian is not a good term. Christian is a source of derision or it is a derogatory, insulting term. Paul has been talking before the the kings who are rulers over the area. And he's speaking before King Agrippa. And at some point, King Agrippa goes, you're mad, Paul, you're mad. And he says to him, do you, verse 28 of chapter 26, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? See, it gives it a totally different meaning when you realize that it's not something that they wanted to be, but it was something that they felt was derogatory. But then the other where, the other place, and these are the only three times in the whole Bible that the word Christianos is used. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 28. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Those are the only three times that the word Christianos is ever used in the Bible. And what Peter is saying in his letter is, 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. See, by the time Peter was writing this letter, the church had taken ownership of this term. The term Christian that starts out as a meaning of insult became a means of identification. People who were followers of Jesus willingly took on this moniker, this name. And according to Peter's teachings, not only were they to wear it, but they were to wear it proudly, giving praise to God for the privilege of wearing the name Christian. Now, we talked about the history of the word Christian, but what does it mean to be a Christian? Because honestly, in today's society, isn't it kind of like what Peter was saying? If the world is making fun of you because you have the term Christian attached to your lifestyle, wear it proudly, bring glory to God. Because see, right now, it's not the in thing to be Christian. Back in the 19, mid-70s and early 80s, everyone wanted to be born again Christian because that was culturally acceptable and it was actually fashionable to say you were born again. But today, in our society today, the world is not tolerant of us. We are told to be tolerant of every single human being regardless of creed, culture, affiliation, or orientation. You understand my meaning. But if we try to stand up in the public marketplace and say our feelings, our thoughts, our philosophy, we're shot down. It is not appropriate in our society to be known as a Christian. It is not a good thing to be known as a Christian. And when someone says they are an evangelical Christian, oh my goodness, you want to you wanna take away all of my freedoms and all of my rights and try to make me be who you say and I'm supposed to be. You know, and literally, we just get beaten down. I can get in trouble, and our church can lose its, its nonprofit status with the government if I speak on certain things. This should not be. Why should we not be able to speak truth any place at any time and anywhere? It's because the culture has changed, and we are no longer welcome. So the reality is, we're facing the same thing that Peter was saying to this group of people back in that day. You should wear the name Christian proudly. Yeah, it's a statement of derision in the minds of most of the people you come in contact with. And yes, they're going to make fun of you and they're not going to receive what you have to say. But you need to bring glory to God anyway and proudly walk as a little Christ. Because that's what we're called to be. If we are indeed followers of Jesus. Now I am going through a course, a, a master's level course on spiritual formation. What it means to be a Christian. And this is a topic of discussion that we've had for a long, long time. But most specifically in the last few weeks we've been discussing this specifically. As I told the kids this morning, years ago if you asked someone what it meant to be a Christian... They might sing you a song, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. But think about it. The people who are on television promoting Christ, are they promoting love? Or are they promoting 
being wealthy? Are they promoting be healed? Now, I'm not saying any of that's wrong. But what I am saying, oh, and, and also without being unkind, look at the clown with the pink hair. She and her husband have been on that, on that channel for 40 years. And as you've watched her progress over the years, she's gotten worse and worse and worse in her clowning. And I'm sorry to be unkind, but that's the reality. And what that says is, she's making a fool of herself and she's bringing a bad name to Christianity because the world looks at it and goes, what in the world is that? Did you know that back in the day when Peter was writing to these people that were being persecuted for having the name Christ, that we were known as cannibals because we ate bodies and drank blood when we had our worship services? It's the truth. It's historically accurate. Christians were thought of as cannibalistic and that they practiced cannibalism as part of their worship practices. See, the world doesn't understand us. And the problem with understanding present day Christianity, it's all about that there is so many different answers. As I said earlier, there isn't one type of Christian anymore. We are simply too diverse. I want to just give you, I mean, I want to ask a simple question and I want to hear some answers. How many different types of Christians are there? Talk amongst yourselves for a moment. How many different types of Christian, let's just say denominations, let's put it that way so you understand what I'm talking about. How many different types of denominations are there, literally? Quite a bit. A hundred? Thousand? According to the World Christian Encyclopedia in the year 2000, so this was 12 years ago, Christianity across the globe had 33,820 different denominations. 33,820 denominations. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored so they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Then they'll know we are Christians by our love. Even in this room, even in this room, if I were to have you stand up and tell me your background, some of you don't claim the Church of the Nazarene even though you attend it every week. Because this is just a community church to you. And I'm not saying that you're right or wrong. I'm just simply saying that's just reality. Some of you sit in those cheap pews every week going, I'm a Nazarene, I'm a stalwart Nazarene, I've been a Nazarene my whole life. My grandma's been a Nazarene, my grandpa was a Nazarene, my mom and dad were Nazarenes, my kids, by God, are going to be Nazarenes, all the way down to the last time that we have anybody on this earth until Jesus comes. And there's everything in between. Seriously. There are some of you, Maggie, oh my goodness, I love her to death, and I'll tell her this to her face, she's a Catholic Mormon Nazarene. That's who she is. She'll tell you that. Because that's part of her heritage. That's how her, that's how her background has been, and she still goes to all. <laughs> and, and so if you can't definitively say what it means to be a Christian, how can the world even understand us? I want to read to you some quotes. These, some of these are lengthy quotes, and I'm sorry for that. I wish I had the ability to put them on the screen, but to put them on the screen, they would have been too small and you couldn't have seen them. So let me just read these to you. First of all, there's a woman named Amy that I go to school with online, and, and she wrote this just recently. 
Do you think obedience but not surrender is one of the reasons why so many people choose not to follow God anymore? They had so many years of obeying but not really wanting to, and then they are burnt out on obedience. A friend of mine thinks that Christians' lives, although they should be so much more than this, are basically spent just trying to make sure that they follow the rules with varying degrees of success. It seems that part of his, my friend's resistance to becoming a Christian is that he just wasn't have a bunch of rules imposed on him. Does that sound like a reasonable perception for someone who's looking at Christianity from the outside? That we have a lifestyle where we have a bunch of rules placed on us and we have no choice but to follow them if we want to be good little Christians? Professor Tom Ord, who is a theologian and also a professor at Northwest Nazarene University, has written on one of his blogs recently during the election. He wrote this blog. Um, The title of the blog was Obama Christian? Romney Christian? And what he wrote was this. For me, the issues of love are paramount to the question of Christian identity. As I read the Bible, the issues of love seem paramount for Jesus. The greatest commands, he says, are to love God and love others as oneself. And as I read the Bible, the main themes revolve around love. Love isn't the exclusive domain of Christians, however. Buddhists can love too. So can atheists. So saying they will know we are Christians by our love isn't precisely true. But what I do think Jesus continually pointed his listeners to love, uh, what I do think Jesus continually pointed his listeners to love as the core of salvation. And I think Christians rightly say love is the centerpiece of Christian faith. We don't have exclusive right to to the motion of love and to the demonstration of love. So if we were to say, if someone were to say, what is a Christian? You say, well, it's somebody who loves really well. It's not a good way to define us. Yes, it's part of who we are, and it is paramount, as he said, in who we are. It's central and core to our faith. It's central and core to, set to our salvation. But it is not defining in who we are as Christians. I wrote in one of my blog entries to the, to the cohort that I'm part of, the journey is about the relationship That's what's resounding with my soul this morning. I'm preparing a sermon for this coming weeks titled, What is a Christian? And I've been wrestling with this thought for a little little while now. In our evangelical mindset, we teach that one must have a personal relationship with Jesus. But what about our Orthodox, our Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, all of them, all of those brothers and sisters? Do they have an ongoing vital relationship with Jesus? Would they even understand that terminology when discussing their faith? What would be the definitive litmus test to determine what a Christian truly is? Is it processing through a catechism to ultimate confirmation in the faith? And I wrote parenthetically, I sometimes think that we evangelicals really miss out on a lot by not requiring our people to go through a formal catechism. Is it simply saying a prayer of confession? For example, in Romans chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, where it says to believe that the Lord is Jesus Christ, believe that Jesus is the Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So my point is, in, the, in all of this, what exactly is a Christian? And then finally, 
This is the most lengthy one, but he's got some really good points. There's a guy named Steve Dewhurst, and he wrote in his blog, and if you, have, if you want to see the blog, I can give you the information later. But he wrote, anyone who is saved will be saved by grace through faith. No principle is more fundamental to New Testament teaching, yet few principles are less understood. In the minds of many people, faith stands as an isolated entity completely separate from its effect on people's lives. And for this reason, it is not uncommon to see folks who readily claim faith in Jesus yet live like the devil. And this is, this is one of the areas I want you to hear, so hear this. Real faith as portrayed in scripture, isn't just an abstract concept that occupies one small corner of the disciple's life. Real faith is his life. His conviction is to shape every action he takes around his faith. As Paul states so eloquently, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. To view faith apart from its effect on one's life is to misunderstand the nature of saving faith. If the Bible's great chapter on faith, Hebrews 11, teaches us anything, it's that genuine faith is an abiding trust and confidence in God. And this trust and confidence in God compels us to do his will. Look at Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses. None of them were perfect. Each had a perfect heart for God. Each one had a faith that was inextricably linked to his conduct. And again, hear these last words. Real faith obeys God. And obedience serves as the only valid Evidence of faith. Talk is cheap. And lip service to God is easy, as too many of us know. But changing one's life to conform to God's will declares a faith that is genuine. It always is a mistake to sever faith from obedience. So we talked about history and what it means about what Christianity means. We talked about what we think Christianity means and what contemporary people think Christianity means. But what does the Bible have to say about it? I told you earlier that there's only three times in all of Scripture that the word Christianos, Christian, is used. But it talks, Scripture talks a lot about what it means to be a Christian. And I think if we can pull these snippets out, we'll be able to work ourselves some kind of a, a working definition so that when somebody asks you, you're a Christian? I didn't think you'd be like that. You go, well, what do you think I'm like? And it opens up this incredible conversation and you'll have something to say to them that is coherent. Instead of just, uh, we, we eat his body and drink his blood every three weeks. I mean, serious. <laughs> what would you say? So the question that I want to, the thing I want to look at, first of all, is Ephesians. And you can turn with me if you'd like. I will be reading these to you. Ephesians chapter four, verses one to six. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And this is the, what I find the most important. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
And just a couple weeks ago at a pastor's meeting in town, one of the pastors said during our meeting, as we were discussing this verse of scripture, ours is not an individual faith. Ours is a corporate faith. When one of us is floundering, the others around them continue to proclaim the truth and declare the truth. Do you hear that? When one is struggling in their understanding of, of Scripture or their belief system, for example, I'll just give you a real for example right now. How can a good and loving God allow someone who loves Him so much to die such a painful and horrible death? Those questions have been asked of me. When that person is struggling to understand what their faith is and how they can understand God better, the best thing you can do is to speak truth into their life. Don't try and make excuses for God. Don't try and explain it away. Don't try and say, oh, well, I, I don't fully understand, but I know that God loves. Just speak the truth. I don't understand how this could be going on, but I know that God is with him right now because God said in his word, he will never leave him or forsake him. And find ways to bring truth into the heart and mind of a fellow Christian who's struggling in their faith. But see, that doesn't happen unless you're practicing corporate faith. That doesn't happen unless you're in relationship with other Christians on a regular basis. To call oneself a Christian is not being part of an individual faith. To call oneself a Christian, you weren't told to say when you pray, say, my father who art in heaven. You were taught to say, our father who art in heaven. There's a sense of us, a unified us, but an us. To call oneself a Christian means to align yourself with a community, a, a body of fellow believers. There are no lone ranger Christians. People can say they are, but they're not living according to what the scripture declares. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I already mentioned it, but I want to look at it a little bit more in detail. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. But now let's look at the very next one, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. Paul teaches if you declare Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to be Christian and going to be saved. That doesn't make sense. How can they be speaking out of both sides of their mouth? And what I would submit to you is that apparently, from what we read in the scripture, calling Jesus Lord is not enough to declare yourself a Christian. 
According to this passage of scripture, it is very possible that some of even you sitting in this room could be fooling yourself into thinking that you're in a right relationship with Jesus because you've named the name Jesus and you've said Jesus is Lord. But Jesus said there will be some who do that that don't get in. An oral confession of Jesus as Lord doesn't always indicate a repentant heart. It doesn't always indicate that you have entered into right relationship. In the New Testament, there are different Greek words that, you, that are used to talk about this word repentance. The distinctions between these words are what goes on in the heart of the person who does the repenting. First of all, the first type of repentance is simply being sorry because you did sin. It's the type of repentance that doesn't really mean that there's been a change of heart. You're just sorry you got caught. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that I did it. I'm sorry. Please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hear nothing in that that says, I'm never going to do it again. And that's what true repentance is. And that's this next type of repentance that's talked about in the Bible. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just a change in mind of, this was really cool to do, but now I recognize it was a bad thing to do. But it's actually, this was, used to think it was cool to do, but now I recognize that it's not a good thing to do. And on top of that, I intend to make differences in my life so that I never go there again. That's what true repentance is. And it is this second type of repentance to which God offers cleansing from sin. And it is that type of attitude of the heart that coupled with the words, Jesus is Lord, causes true salvation and true right relationship with God and true cleansing. Lip service doesn't cut it. It's got to be the whole thing. Jesus said, I told you earlier, Jesus said, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you ain't doing that, you're not a Christian, buddy. It's just the way it is. You can think you are. You can go to church. You can do all the good stuff. You can read the Bible. You can do it. But if you're not living a life of love before your fellow man and among a fellowship of Christians, you're not a Christian. You're just playing Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Jesus is sitting in a house talking to a group of people and all of a sudden his mom and his brothers and sisters are outside going, he's a crazy man, we need to take him home. He's talking crazy. Let him, let, we need to get in there. We need to open the door, please. Get out, get out of the way. So, can, can we, tell him we're outside, please. Tell Jesus that we're out here. We need to talk to him. And somebody goes, Jesus, there's a group of people outside says you're your mother and your brothers and they want to talk to you because they said something's wrong and they need to take you home. And Jesus says in verse 35 of chapter 3, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Look around. These are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. These are the people that are doing the will of God and those are the ones who are my family. Very definitively, Jesus said, if you're a follower of mine, You follow the will of God. They'll know we are Christians by our love and our obedience to the commands and directives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Look at Hebrews chapter 10.
And this is the last of the scriptures we're going to be looking at. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 25. This is talking about Jesus as the high priest. Every high priest, every day, doing his service, offering over and over the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But there's this one guy, after he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And from then on, he waits until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has brought to the goal for all time those who are being set apart for God and being made holy. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write it on their minds. And he adds, And their sins and their wickedness I'll remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness for these... An offering for sin is no longer needed. So, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to use the way into the holiest place opened by the blood of Christ. He inaugurated for us as a new and living way through that curtain by means of his flesh. We also have a great high priest over God's household. Therefore, let us approach the holiest place with a sincere heart in the full assurance that coming from trusting With our hearts sprinkled clean from a bad conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us continue holding fast to the hope that we acknowledge without wavering. For the one who made us the promise is trustworthy. And let us keep paying attention to one another in order to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Don't neglect our own congregational meetings if some are making a practice of doing. Rather, encourage each other. And let us do this all the more as you see the day of God approaching. Now, that was a lot. Let me break it down into some little chunks. First of all, verse 22 says, Let us approach the holiest place in the temple with a sincere heart and a a full assurance that comes from trusting, with our hearts sprinkled clean from a bad conscience and our body washed with pure water. First of all, a true Christian can approach God with a sincere heart. You are truly trying to seek God. You come here not just playing a game, you're real. As real as you can possibly be. All of me, God. I want to know you. I want to be in your presence. And I understand that I can't be because I'm dirty. But I I claim the blood of Jesus as my righteousness. I claim that you have promised that if I will confess my sins and repent of my sins. And acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Declare that you raised him from the dead. Believe it in my heart. I can stand before you sincerely and be accepted by you. So God, that's what I'm doing right now. Verse 22 also says that true Christians have full assurance in our hearts that we're clean. There's no fear because we know that we know that we know that we know that Jesus has cleansed us because of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Verse 23 says, let us continue holding fast to the hope that we acknowledge without wavering. For the one who made us that promise is trustworthy. A true Christian continually, without wavering, holds fast to the hope of eternal life. Never a question. When death comes, I don't have to be afraid. Because I know that I know that I know, without wavering, always I know that there's a hope. If I am in right relationship with Jesus Christ, I have nothing to fear. I have a hope. Verse 24 And let us keep paying attention to to one another in order to spur each other on to love and good deeds. A true Christian lives in community with other Christians by, first of all, paying attention to one another. 
And I'm not going to make you feel bad, but I am going to ask you a question. My intent's not to make you feel bad. Look around the room. Do you know everybody in this room? Could you even say where they live? Do you know their first name? Do you know that if they were in Fred Myers and you saw them, would you really be able to say hi and call them by name? Every single week you come in here and you sit down in here and you look at me and you don't pay attention to the ones around you. Is that really community? I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm just asking some simple questions. If we truly say we are Christians and we live in community with other Christians, then how come we don't pay attention to each other? And I'm just as guilty, folks. I get busy. I forget things. My wife is so much better at remembering the details of people's lives than me. I don't know why. It's just not there for me. It doesn't, doesn't stick. Another thing this verse says is that true Christians encourage each other to love and good deeds. When I see one of you, I have the right because I'm the pastor, but when I see one of you not living right, it's my responsibility before God to come up to you and say, hey, you ain't living right. We need to, come on, let's, let's, let's work this out. But you know what? It's not just the pastor's job. Every single one of you have the right, if you're really a Christian, you have the right to come up alongside somebody and say, hey, I noticed you're struggling in an area. Come on, what can I do to help you? How can I make it easier for you to live the life that God is calling you to live? Because I see you struggling in this area. And then finally, regular participation in congregational meetings. Now, the one thing you need to recognize and understand was that their world and our world is totally different. Their world, when this was written, they ate meals together. They slept basically in a communal world. I mean, they literally, they didn't live all in the same room, but they basically hung out all the time together. We don't because of our lifestyle. But wouldn't it be wonderful if this church that you call your church home could be your support when you needed it? That you wouldn't fear calling one of us at 3.30 in the morning when, a, when there's a bear in the backyard? I don't have a gun. Help me. Please help me. Call somebody. Get somebody over here. Or when you're stuck in the middle of the road and there's nobody around and you've gone off the road and it's 20 degrees below zero and you're starting to get cold, who would you call? Who would you call? Don't say it out loud, but think about it. Are they in this room? The reality is most of you wouldn't call somebody in this room. You'd call somebody who lives outside of this faith community. Why is it that we call ourselves Christians, but we don't affiliate ourselves with other Christians, except once a week on Sunday morning. I don't understand. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm just stating what the Bible says. So let's, let's wrap this up and tie a bow on it. What is a Christian? Christians are followers of Jesus who believe that he is the son of God. They regularly study his teachings as found in the Bible and they strive to apply them to their own lives. That's number one. What is a Christian? 
Christians are people who willingly repent of their self-centered way of doing things. They turn from the lifestyle practices that they recognize are offensive to God. And they intentionally take on the lifestyle of Jesus. Namely, living a life of love. Who are Christians? What are Christians? Christians are people who not only call Jesus Lord, but actually live like he is. They seek to know and follow God's will in their lives. What are Christians? Christians are people who live in community with other Christians. If one is not regularly engaged in mutual encouragement and in corporate worship with other Christians, one cannot really consider themselves a Christian. That's Christianity. That's what it means. I gave you four statements totaling probably about 60 to 70 words. Your assignment for this week is to do this. First of all, when, you, when was the first time you realized that you were in right relationship with Jesus and how did you recognize it and how did somebody show you, I mean, did somebody show you or did you have a self-revelation? In other words, in your Christian walk, when did you become a Christian? When did you go, yeah, I really believe this. I really am serving the, the God and I really am trying to live the way that, that Jesus taught. Number two, If you had the opportunity to create the slogan that God would use to let the world know that Christianity, what Christianity is all about, what would you write? Your answer can be no more than 15 words long, and you need to be prepared to share your slogans at your community group meetings this week. Some of you, you have five hours. (laughs) Some of you, you have a day or two. Huh? Huh? Okay. Then you have two weeks. But the reality is, is this, and, and, and even for your, if you're not part of a group, if you're not me, try and do this. Try and come up with a succinct way of describing what it means to be a Christian. Because when somebody asks you, you're a Christian, why would you want to be a Christian? If you've written it down and thought it through ahead of time, it'll flow off your lips a whole lot better and you'll sound a lot more coherent than, oh, because Jesus is love and I, I, like, I like the good feeling that I have when, when I pray and um, it's, nice, it's nice to have people who care about me. That sounded really appealing and enticing. I think I'll join that group. So think about it. Be intentional about it. First of all, when did you realize that you really, 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 really believed? And what does it mean that you really, 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 really believe? Anyway, let's pray.